Welcome to Carlsbad Bible Church. We hope you um, um, have a good time uh, worshiping with us today. So um, let's go ahead and stand and let's go ahead and read um, God's Word. Let's open our Bibles to Psalms chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 1 through 6. You got it, boss? Psalms chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. It, and it says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his, de- his delight is in the law of Yahweh. And in his law he meditates day and night, and he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaves and, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like shaft which the wind drive away drives away. Therefore the wicked will not rise in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for who you are. We thank you for who you are and and your grace, your love, your mercy, your holiness, Lord. I pray today, Lord, that we exalt you and who you are. I pray, Lord, that we hold you above all truths, Lord, or all um, things that are said of the world, Lord. I pray that we test all things through you, Lord, and your word. We thank you for the great salvation you've given us, Lord, and I pray, Lord, today that uh, we are lifting you up in a manner that is pleasing and satisfying to you, Lord. We thank you. We love you. We pray in your name, Lord. Amen. Father, we come to you. We thank you just that you are omniscient and that you are omnipresent, that you are here with us, that you are almighty over all of these things, the things that have been said, the things that will be said and sung, prayed here today, the things that are yet to come. And you are sovereign over these things, and we pray that we are obedient to your word today. God, as we go into this new book of the Bible, as we begin our new year with a new book, may it just resonate in our hearts, and we pray that it would penetrate and speak to our very souls, that we would be changed by it, that we would be more Christ-minded in our lives lived out in this world, uh, because your word is instructing us, and we're leaning in on your word and trusting in your Holy Spirit to be our teacher within. So please guide us into it today, Lord. Give us of your knowledge, of your wisdom, and help us to be just changed by it. God, I I pray for the the souls that are here as we come together around your word that you would feed into us all that you have readied for us on your banquet table, the feast of your word today. And we just praise you for it, and we thank you, God, and we love you. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. If you would turn with me to a new book of the Bible. We're no longer in the book of Philippians. We are now in the gospel of Mark. I say gospel of Mark even though uh, the New Testament uh, writers did not apply that to their, their writings. Um, it's just called Mark, but we refer to it often as the gospel of Mark. And as I was uh, opening this up in my Bible today, I just happened to see a date inserted in my Bible that I had written in and just didn't realize it until today that I had begun a personal study of this book on January 8th of 2023, and here we are very close to that mark, January 7th of 2024, and starting a new book, and it happened to be the Gospel of Mark. I'm going to read the first five verses 
Uh, that's where we'll find ourselves uh, more or less this morning confined to verses, I think, 1 through 4 is what we're going to get through this morning. But as we often try to do is give you a little bit of background uh, into the writing of Mark, who Mark was, the time in which it was written, uh, some of the context, uh, the target audience who it was written to, though we understand it as being written to everyone, those of us who are now benefiting and being blessed by it today. But let me read through verses 1 through 5. We'll come back to that, but uh, we're going to spend some time looking at the background of Mark. Verse 1, chapter 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now let's go to the Lord one more time in prayer. Wes, would you open this up, please? Amen. So let's just look at the background, uh, who Mark was, where he appears in passages of Scripture. This isn't just the only instance where we see Mark's name appear. Actually, his name doesn't really appear in his writings, but uh, yet we have over this book titled Mark, and most commentators agree that Mark, John Mark, was the writer of this gospel. So, I depend a lot on biblical historians, those who have done a lot of research into the background of these writings, and so I look to them to provide a lot of the content for this, so I want to especially remind you to be Bereans um, when we kind of look at outside sources other than the scripture itself to try and build upon the, the background and the context, so just take that for what it is, but I don't want to lead you off track from the beginning with just in this introduction um, speaking something that might be wrong. Always check these things against the scriptures uh, when, when we have that affirmation from scripture, we know that it's truth, but in a lot of this background information, we, we may not have that available, so just uh, check these things and know that it is mostly commentary and others that are, are writing these things one of the first mentions of Mark, who is also John Mark, in the Scriptures is found in Acts chapter 12. So if you want to turn to Acts chapter 12 there with me, we just see a mention of his name. Not really anything about him, but it's there in verse 11 of Acts chapter 12. Now, Peter has just been miraculous, miraculously freed from these Roman uh, guards and James had just recently been beheaded, and God had a plan that Peter was going to continue in spreading the gospel message, so he was delivered, and he arrives at a house here in Jerusalem, 
And there in verse 11, it says, When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Verse 12, When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So he probably raised in Jerusalem, and that's where his home was, uh, the house of Mary. And such as it was that his, uh, his mother was Mary, and his name is John, who was also Mark. Now, we also know from Scripture that John Mark was a cousin of Barnabas. Uh, we see that in Colossians 4.10. We can turn there just in a moment. But I also want us to realize that as with any human that is mentioned in Scripture, even those that we may put up on a pedestal, like Peter and Paul and James and the writers of the New Testament, those in the Old Testament literature, that sometimes we can elevate them to a place where maybe they're almost achieving this godlike status in our minds that they're perfect, but God paints the picture of man in the Scriptures and doesn't pull any punches for us that they are all sinners, that they uh, are all human and they stumble. And so was the case of John Mark. We see that he did not start out very well. He had gone along with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, but we learn later on that John Mark had somewhere along the way that he had left them, that he had departed from their company, and it wasn't a soft parting as if you know something happened to him where he just couldn't continue with them, but he had just, I guess, grown fickle and he, he had left them. And this led to a sharp dispute between Paul and John Mark's cousin Barnabas as they embarked on the second missionary journey because Barnabas wanted to bring John Mark along. And Paul said, no, you know, he left us and I just won't have it. And it says a sharp dispute arose among them. And so they went their separate ways on that second missionary journey. We see more of what happened in, in Paul's mission, second mission, than we really do any of Barnabas's who probably took John Mark with him. So Mark had abandoned them. Um, if you want the context for that, we see that in Acts chapter 12, verse 25, and also there in 13, 5. And that's where we also in the, in see in a sharp disagreement in Acts chapter 15 uh, between Paul and Barnabas and where they part ways. That's in verses 38 through 40 of Acts 15. We're not going to turn there, but just so you have that to put into your notes. But even though that relationship between Paul and John Mark seemed damaged, maybe to some it might have seemed irreparable because of that sharp dispute, but Mark matured, obviously, a great deal. Um, maybe this was a wake-up call for him. You know, Paul perhaps had said some things to him that really struck a chord in his heart, and we see him mature in Christ, and then he later proved himself reliable to the Apostle Paul, and we have evidence of that. Um, where we also see that John Mark is Barnabas's cousin is in Colossians 4.10. But go ahead and turn to Colossians 4.10. We see the, the healing, uh, the restoration of this relationship uh, here, and then we're going to turn to another passages, other passages that speak of this reconciliation between Paul and John Mark. So Colossians 4.10 Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. 
concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. So Mark is now part of Paul's party. He is among Paul's closest companions. When he writes these letters, he mentions Mark as the being there with him. And there we find the evidence that he is the cousin to Barnabas. Look at Philemon chapter, not chapter, but Philemon verse 24. The next letter written, Philemon verse 1, I'll go back to verse 23. It says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greeting to you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. So they're Mark, along with Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, they're there, and Paul considers them his fellow workers in the ministry of the gospel. And then finally, and probably the, the passage that shows this, this healing of a relationship uh, the most strongly here between Paul and John Mark is found in 2 Timothy verses 4. I'm uh, sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 10 through 11. So you may have noted there where Philemon mentions another person whose name was Demas. And here we see that now Demas has uh, fallen away. Um, But then we see what Paul says of John Mark. 2 Timothy 4 verse 10, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, Luke alone is with me, And then he tells Timothy, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. This is something that just kind of stirs the heart there to see going back to Acts and that sharp dispute between Barnabas and Paul because of John Mark. John Mark had abandoned them and now being restored into that fellowship with Paul such that Paul would say, bring Mark with you. I find him very useful to me and very useful uh, to the ministry. Now, many commentators think that John Mark um, and the Apostle Peter had a very close relationship and that it was Peter who had discipled Mark to the degree now that he had grown in the knowledge and just the maturity in Christ such that Paul would consider him of great use to him in the ministry. But we see that Peter makes special mention of John Mark in his writings in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13. 1 Peter 5.13 She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, as so does Mark, and then he adds, my son. So there alludes to that very close relationship between John Mark and the apostle Peter, that he was probably under Peter's uh, shepherdship under his instruction and was being discipled because Peter refers to Mark as his son. And perhaps this is the reason that Mark had matured and had become useful to Paul, as I had mentioned earlier. Now, the author of this letter, of this gospel that we call it, uh, according to Mark, is not named. Uh, we call it the gospel of Mark, but 
unlike some of the other letters where there could be some debate about who wrote it, particularly Hebrews, um, there, there seems to be a lot of uh, speculation that uh, you know, it wasn't Paul, maybe it was Apollos, and there's, there's a lot of uh, disagreements about that. But most, uh, most believe, and early church fathers would affirm, that John Mark, who we've been reading about and looking at in the Scriptures, that he penned this gospel. So quoting Justin Martyr here, referred to the Gospel of Mark as the memoirs of Peter and suggested that Mark committed his gospel to writing while in Italy. This agrees with the uniform voice of early tradition, which regarded this gospel as having been written in Rome for the benefit of Roman Christians. Irenaeus, writing about AD 185, called Mark the disciple and interpreter of Peter and recorded that the second gospel consisted of what Peter preached about Christ. The testimony of the church fathers differs as to whether this gospel was written before or after Peter's death. So martyr writing there, uh, quoting Irenaeus, also one of the early church leaders, all affirming that Mark was indeed the writer of this gospel. Um, And it's interesting history, but we know who really wrote the gospel and that was the superintention of the Holy Spirit through Mark. So really, we have one author of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and that is the Holy Spirit writing through them, but preserving the unique character um, of, of them and their, their writing styles and personalities. So as far as dates are concerned, uh, most scholars here determine that this gospel ranges somewhere between 50 to 70 A.D., Uh, This would have put it before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. That was a significant milestone uh, within the scriptures. You can usually determine when books were written. If they mention the destruction of Jerusalem, then we know AD 70 was that mark. And if they don't, if they still mention the existence of the temple in Jerusalem, then we can pretty much know that it was probably written before AD 70. We see Mark 5.41 mentioning this. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, I'm sorry, sorry, Mark chapter 13, jumped ahead in my notes here. Mark 13, verses 1 through 2. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So, They're coming out of the physical temple. Jesus is predicting what will happen come A.D. 70 when Rome uh, comes into Jerusalem. It's a a huge slaughter. They tear down the temple. Um, But this has not yet happened. So we can pretty much surmise that this is being written prior to A.D. 70. We know that Luke's gospel was written before the writings of Acts because Luke wrote the gospel of Luke. Then he wrote the continuation, really, of that gospel in Acts. And it's a little easier to place that the date of Acts was around A.D. 63. And because that is shortly after the narrative of Luke ends. So the debatable thing is that most would land on a date somewhere in the A.D. 50s of when the Gospel of Mark is written. Now Mark, the thrust is that he seems to be directing his Gospel to Roman believers. And the evidence that we see there and how we can derive that is that he will take... A time to translate certain Aramaic terms um, into Greek so that a Greek reading this would understand it better. In Mark chapter 5, verse 41, 
Mark 5, 41. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. So you see he's translating Talitha kumai into uh, the Greek, which would have been understandable for someone uh, in Rome to understand. Also, he does the same thing here in Mark chapter 7, verse 11. It's maybe a page or two over for you, Mark 7, 11. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, and then a parenthetical statement here, that is given to God. So he takes that extra attention here to translate this for them, which leads us to believe that this is directed more to a Roman audience. And there are also instances where Mark will make reference to time as a Roman would have understood it. If you look at Mark chapter 6, verse 48, we'll go back maybe a page, Mark 6, 48, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them, and about the fourth watch of the night he came to them walking on the sea, and he meant to pass, he meant to pass them by. So the fourth watch of the night that is a reference to time in a way that someone uh, who's a Greek descent, Rome, would understand it. So these uh, are the instances in how we can kind of derive that Mark was writing to this particular audience. When you compare Mark to the other Gospels, um, we can see the elements that are missing in Mark's that are present in the others. For one, we don't see the genealogies of Christ that are found in Matthew and Luke. And that is likely because... Um, he is writing to the Roman audience. They wouldn't necessarily have, this wouldn't have been as meaningful to them to have all the, the genealogy explained to them. For the Jew, yes, but not for the Roman audience. So another indication that he's writing to those believers in Rome. And then he also makes fewer references to the Old Testament. And we don't find also as many criticisms in this book of the scribes and the Pharisees. We find, I think, one reference to that and that is in 1218. We're not going to turn there, but we will find just only one criticism that's directed to the scribes, the Pharisees, when we see Matthew and Luke and John kind of emphasizing the scribes and the Pharisees and they're, you know, rejecting Jesus as the Messiah and not really painting them in a good light. Quoting one Mark scholar here, it says, It is the one gospel of the four which is aimed at the Gentile ear. Mark was written for the Roman world, for the Gentiles, for those who do not know the background of the Old Testament. Again, that is commentary, um, but there seems to be pretty good evidence in the Scriptures that, that that's correct, that this is more aimed at the Gentile ear. Um, one of the things of Mark's writing... One moment here, I'll turn off the... It's persistent cough that won't go away. Mike, Mark's writings... Uh, focus more on the activity of Jesus, um, more on what Jesus' deeds were rather than the details of his teaching that we find in a couple of the other Gospels. Um, it illustrates his service and his sacrifice um, to minister to others. We also see that Mark will use the word immediately a lot. We'll, I don't know how many times we'll find that. Do you remember, Ray, in your study of it, how many times immediately um, 30-something times, so it just uh, he, he translates everything into action, um, and if you look at the book of Acts and you see Peter's ministry, 
And a lot of scholars think that he was interpreting Peter's gospel for us, or he's writing that down, that Peter was one that translated everything into action. It's like, just, let's just get out there, let's just get her done, and, and he would launch into the activity part of it. Perhaps that was some kind of influence here and in why we see immediately so much. That's just my own thought on it, speculation, of course. Um, so we don't see the genealogies, um, fewer references of the Old Testament, no, not many criticisms directed to scribes and Pharisees, and also that uh, Mark's writing is different in that it focuses more on the service and sacrifice of the Lord. Um, Mark will not provide some of the longer teachings that Jesus uh, does in other of the Gospels, but he gives us excerpts of the teachings so that we get the gist of what is going on there. And there's also more of an emphasis on Christ's human side that is found in the book of Mark. And that's pretty clear in his writings that we will see. I have quite a few references here, but uh, we won't turn to them right now just for time's sake. I'm going to kind of close out this summary here by reading a statement from J.C. Ryle. Um, and uh, again, this is just commentary before we actually get into the study of the text. But he writes this concerning the book of Mark. Uh, <clears throat> Of all the four inspired histories of our Lord's earthly ministry, this is by far the shortest. But we must not allow these peculiarities to make us undervalue St. Mark's gospel. It is a gospel singularly full of precious facts about the Lord Jesus, narrated in a simple, terse, pithy, and condensed style. If it tells us few of our Lord's sayings, it is eminently rich in its catalog of His doings. It often contains minute historical details of deep interest, which are wholly omitted in Matthew, Luke, and John. In short, it is no mere abridged copy of St. Matthew, as some have asserted. But the independent narrative of an independent witness who was inspired to write a history of our Lord's works rather than of His words. Let us read it with holy reverence, like all the rest of Scripture, every word of St. Mark is given by inspiration of God, and every word is profitable. I think that's some good advice as we get ready to start this book. Let me come back to verse 1 of Mark chapter 1. Let's read that again, and we'll unpack it together. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God... As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So we um, are starting this new book at the beginning of this new year, and we do that with Mark launching us right into Jesus' earthly adulthood ministry. So Mark marks the beginning of this book with the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now some think that Mark is making an allusion here to Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 for in the beginning where God created, um, we see John doing that in the beginning of his gospel. And I think it's more clear that John is actually alluding to in the beginning 
Because he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Mark does not say that here. He could be making an allusion to the beginning of time as we know it, when God created, that Christ was there, that Christ was preeminent with God. But I think what we are seeing here is that this is not just the beginning of Mark's book, but yet this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, we can maybe speculate that he's making some allusions here, but that would just be speculation at best. I think that what we are to see is that through Christ, that the, this good news to mankind from God started there, this covenant relationship, and it began with the coming of God's one and only Son to this earth. Christ, our Emmanuel, God with us. The beginning that Mark marks out here is also for us to see the continuance of it. That he says, this isn't the beginning, and then I'm going to conclude it, and we're going to say this is the end, but this is the beginning. This is something that is continuing even today. In Luke's writing of his gospel, he continues with the book of Acts, and he, he never really ends the book of Acts because we really see the gospel continuing in a very real sense, being written daily as lost souls hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. They believe and they are saved, so the gospel is not ended, the gospel is continuing. So as we see Mark write the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are to understand that this is something continuing in us today, that Christ is alive, that he is seated at the right hand of God, that he's continuing to save by his grace, continuing the good news. So this good news, what we say is the good news, is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it is a Greek word, oiangelion, I think is perhaps the, the proper translation or the proper pronouncement of that, but uh, anyway, it, it means that simply that it is the good news, but originally, because this isn't just something that was developed by Christians, originally it meant a reward for good news, not simply the good news itself, that became later on that this word became interpreted as the good news itself. The gospel, as we proclaim, is the announcement of the good news of Christ come to this earth to redeem mankind. But before this, it was an announcement that typically would be an announcement that a king was coming or the king was delivering good news that they were bringing something to the society and it was coming from someone in a higher authority. It could have been a king or it could have been some form of royalty, but that was the announcement that was brought through someone that it was good news that was coming from something higher up. It is the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. And that's why Mark begins with this royal pronouncement proclaiming the arrival of the king of kings and his coming kingdom. Now, by the time Mark wrote this book, the word gospel had become a technical term referring to the announcement of the Christian good news, the preaching about Jesus Christ and God's saving power accomplished through Christ's work here on this earth, his work on the cross and salvation. Paul writes in Romans 1.16 that he is not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This good news come to us in Jesus Christ. Now it wasn't until much later that the church began to refer to the four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as the gospels, the teachings of Jesus as the gospels. 
And I know in our Christian circles, those uh, here, you know, part of our church, that we understand that we know that the gospel is the message of salvation to lost sinners who are perishing in their sins. It is a declaration to those who are saved also that we never cease preaching, we never cease, of course, living the gospel, that it is not just for the benefit of those who have not heard the gospel. We want that they would hear the gospel and be saved, for even those that are saved, we preach the gospel continually to one another. It is something that should be saturating our message. We become more prepared, I think, in ourselves in articulating the gospel so that others are saved, that we grow in the knowledge of it. It's a, a cause to rejoice in our salvation of all that we have received in Christ is to grow in the knowledge of it. In fact, before Paul would say that he is not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God for salvation, that's verse 16 of Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1 verse 15, he says, I long to be with you in Rome so that I may share the gospel with you. And he's, he's saying that to those who are already saved. He's saying that to Roman Christians. Why would he share the gospel with those who are already saved? But we see that the gospel is so rich. It is simple for those to understand as as children, but then it is also so rich in its meaning, and we need to grow in the knowledge of it. And there's so many reasons that we should, but with it comes an excitement. It comes uh, with an expectation of, of good news to all people. We could rightly say then that the writings of Paul are the gospels, that the writings of Peter, the writings of James, um, all the, the writers of the New Testament, even the writers of the Old Testament, they're writing the gospel, that these are the gospels, not just the four books that we call the gospels, because the New Testament never uses gospel to refer to one of these four books. It's something that has just been kind of added uh, by man. So as Mark continues, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So we need to consider... What is packed into this title that, that Mark would say of his Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God? His first name is Jesus. Now, that's very clear. It's a, it identifies him as a man. He has, you know, other people's were, people were named Jesus during this time. It was his name assigned by his parents, not by accident. They were told to call him Jesus, and that's because his name has meaning. A lot of names have meetings. If you ever look up your, you may not want to because you may be disappointed in, <laughs> in what it says about your name, but if you can look in, in history, you can see that maybe there was a name behind um, or a meaning behind your name. But Jesus in Hebrew is Joshua, and the name itself means Jehovah is salvation. So that's the meaning of his earthly name, his man name. And under the new covenant, we understand that he is the one through whom salvation came. So very fitting and not an accident that his name was Jesus, which means Jehovah is salvation. So we even see God in his sovereignty having planned out his earthly name. Now the Christ part of his name sets his name apart from all others. This part identifies him as the one who is God's sent one. It is the anointed of God. The Messiah is another way of saying God's anointed. So when we say Jesus Christ, the Christ part is the special appointment and anointment of God. 
we know that Christ came as fully man and as fully God, described in over 300 messianic prophecies. From the beginning, Mark makes very clear the divine sonship of Jesus Christ. And knowing that Mark was writing to the Romans, I think makes this even more unique when he says the Son of God here, because there were others who were referred to as the Son of God. Uh, Emperor worship was very prevalent at that time, and they would even refer to an emperor of Rome as being a son of God, and I will say lowercase son of a lowercase God, because we know, of course, they were not true sons of God. And, but that is the way that the enemy operates in trying to give us a counterfeit for truth. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of the Sovereign One, who Himself was God, but then the enemy offering us something that is counterfeit. And I know here in this nation that we don't ascribe uh, deity to people that are higher up in politics or maybe they're famous, you know, singers or actors. But in a sense, we can give our heart to that in thinking that they have this place of prominence, almost that they have become godlike to us. And that is how the enemy operates, giving us a counterfeit Christ. But here Mark proclaims he is the son of the most sovereign, the only son of God, We know Him to be the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him, God's one and only Son, who is God incarnate to us. And so it is essential that Mark makes this clear, then, that Jesus was the Son of the one true God. And Jesus is not some other form of deity, or that He is only given as a gift to a select group, that it's only to Israel, that the Messiah was to come, but He is to be received by all peoples and cultures as the Lord who is over all. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, how did he prove himself as the Son of God? Well, as I mentioned earlier, he had 300 prophecies concerning him, and Mark is going to now quote Old Testament Scripture. Now, as we talked about in the the beginning or in the introduction, that he doesn't do this much, but here from the beginning, he's quoting Old Testament Scripture just to solidify Christ Christ having being the Messiah, the one to come. And verse 2, he says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messengers before your face, my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Mark says, As it is written... In Isaiah the prophet. Now, some have been confused by what Mark is doing here because Mark begins with saying the prophet Isaiah, but then he immediately goes into a prophecy that is actually from Malachi. And some would try to contend, okay, well, there's there's an error right here in Scripture, but that's not error at all. Mark is not confused here, but what he's doing is he's stressing it is what Isaiah said by naming him, and then he goes on to quote how Malachi's prophecy agrees with Isaiah's message because he combines the two together. He starts with Malachi's prophecy, and then he bookends it with Isaiah's statement. Look back at it. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, here's Malachi's statement, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Here's Isaiah agreeing with that, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So Malachi agreeing with Isaiah, Isaiah agreeing with Malachi. There is an error here, 
but rather it is Scripture supporting Scripture. And we do that often here where we might reference a Scripture. We're going to do it here in a moment with Mark, and we're going to be looking at the book of John. And that is simply what is going in on here. There should not to be any confusion uh, it helps to know that, yes, there are two prophecies quoted by different uh, prophets, but they, they go together, and that's simply what Mark is doing for us. So what it does really is it gives, gives us a good example or it demonstrates the harmony of the Scriptures and how they go together. Malachi was the last prophet to proclaim the coming of the Messiah, and after his prophecy, man encountered silence from God. There was, there's nothing written in between Malachi and the start of the New Testament. So man assumed that God was just maybe finished saying all that he had to say. But Mark recalls the former things written, and he creates a bridge from then with Malachi and Isaiah to now with the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That Jesus Christ interrupted that silence from the prophets where God was not bringing His Word in the form of prophets, but then His Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have beheld His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father. That the, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That all things were made through Him. Without Him, not anything was made that was made. Silence of 400 years is now just thundering in with the Word incarnate, Jesus Christ the Son. But God had one more prophet to bring His proclamation to the people. He was not done speaking through a man who was a designated prophet. And although there were those that probably interpreted silence from God through prophets as God not having any more to say, John the Baptist is showing us otherwise. John the Baptist is going to now speak forth the words and the plan of God. And that's what prophets did. They heralded. And we'll see where John, being a prophet, uh, or the prophets, Isaiah and Malachi, they heralded a prophet who would then herald the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one and only Son of God. So when we look at this, starting how, with how Malachi uh, brings us prophecies, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. And that's actually from Malachi 3.1. That's the reference for that there. The I, when he says, behold, I, he's speaking, God's speaking through him. God is the I that is spoken of here, God the Father. And it is God the Father speaking of the eternal sonship of his Son, He's speaking to the eternal son here through Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger, that's going to be John the Baptist, to prepare your way, speaking to Jesus Christ, his son. Uh, It's just kind of amazing when you take it apart and you think about it that way. I send my messenger. That there is nothing that's going to stop this. This is the present tense. I send my messenger. This is my promise. You can be sure it is going to happen even though you may have to wait 400 years for it to happen, it will be sure, it will be true, it is from God. In fact, the CSB translates this, I am sending. Through 400 years, or though 400 years would have to pass, since Malachi, it would be 700 years from the writing of Isaiah. Nonetheless, 
God was promising a messenger that would go out before his anointed. And it was hanging here on the precipice of occurring. I, I saw this video of, of this golf shot this guy made, and he hits this ball, and you think it's going to be a hole-in-one, and it's just hanging on the edge of the cup. And everybody thought, oh man, you know, it's, it's done for. He's going to have to hit it again. And he waits for, I guess, a solid two or three minutes, and then finally that ball tips over into the cup. And now there's a lot of celebration. It's finally done. But here, uh, just I get this image of something that is teetering on this, this, the edge of this cliff. It's just ready for us. And man had to wait 400 years to hear it from God. But now it's finally tipped over. And now we finally have this culmination of these prophecies. And it is in Christ. And now John is going to herald this coming. 2 Peter 3, 8-9, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. His timing is perfect. His promises are sure. They may not be today. It may be the answer of wait, but we can be sure that He will bring His promise to fulfillment. The prophecy is a promise from the Father to the Son that one would come before Him to prepare the way. And that one would come would be John the Baptist. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make His paths straight. So this, if you were to have a checklist in front of you, and you were going through all the prophecies of Christ and making sure that He accomplished every one of these things that was foretold of Him, you would need to have a prophet come before Him that would announce His coming. And here's John the Baptist. Check the box. This proves that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. So it's just one of the further proofs on the checkbox of Jesus Christ's Messiahship. In a sense, John was sent to prepare the way for the way, because Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. So there's kind of a double entendre there. But And he would be the voice crying in the wilderness. So John was himself in a literal wilderness, but when you think of what is being written about there by the prophet Isaiah, the, the wilderness, the wandering, as the people would remember their wandering in the wilderness because they didn't inherit the promised land when they thought they should, and so they began to have to wander. We see that in a very um, uh, a spiritual sense for all of us who are wandering in darkness in our sin. And so though John the Baptist was in a physical wilderness, literally, he was also speaking promise into the wilderness of our hearts the condition of all of us who are wandering lost in our sin. And that's just kind of my, my take on it. Um, but you think about the nation of Israel, how for centuries they're enshrouded in darkness. And here comes this one who is the promised prophet of God to now speak to the people to deliver them or to show them this light that they would be led into that John the Baptist would preach. And it's in harmony, and what, or what John, the Gospel of John writes is in harmony with what Mark writes here. 
This is what John says of John the Baptist in John 1, 6-9. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. This light of Christ into the wilderness of man's heart. To light the way. John's whole purpose was to be the forerunner, John the Baptist's forerunner, to run before the king to prepare the way. As it was with the prophets of the Old Testament, though, many people would not listen to them. I know, I think the men's Bible study on Wednesday nights went through Ezekiel, right? And you know, went through Jonah. And sometimes people will listen, but oftentimes they will reject the words of a prophet. And the Gospel of John expands on this after writing, you know, that he was the true light which gives light to everyone and is coming into the world. It says he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. That many of the Jewish people who had long awaited their Messiah would not acknowledge their Messiah when he came. We know many Jews believed and they were saved. We see that in the books of Acts when the gospel was first preached in Jerusalem, but he did not come for those only. God's grace would be to all who would put their faith in Jesus Christ. In Psalm 67, we see a prophecy concerning this. Psalm 67, verse 1, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, Selah, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Speaking of a way here for all nations, none other than Jesus Christ. Not based on our nationality, not based on our heritage, not based on our social standing, but in and through Christ alone. Continuing in John, because he expands on this a little bit more, uh, John 1, 12 through 13, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor the will of man, nor of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So whether we read it more succinctly in Mark or the more expanded version that John provides here, we see that John the Baptist's arrival on the scene was to fulfill a purpose of preparing the way for Jesus Christ that all might believe through him. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And the preparing of that way was done through his message, and the message was that of repentance and baptism. And so we're almost, almost about to conclude here, but let's just go into verse 4. This will be our last verse of Mark for the day. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John the Baptist was not just a man who had prophetic words to speak and then he did nothing, but he was a man of action. He's very actionable in what he would speak. The preparing of the way was not just something that he said and then, you know, he would walk off, but he was doing something. And the Greek word for his name is actually not John the Baptist. 
wasn't saying that he was a, a religious guy that just went to one church, but it is, it really means the one who baptizes. So John is the one who baptizes. That's what, what it means. It doesn't mean, you know, one, one religion. But prophets were typically given something to do to illustrate God's message to the people. I, I can't remember which one it was. Maybe it was Elijah that had to, or Ezekiel that had to lay on his side for a whole year to illustrate and uh, the rejection of Israel, of God. We uh, have other one that had to marry a prostitute just to illustrate you know, the continual rejection of God by the, or, yeah, by the people. And so it seems that throughout the Old Testament we have this example. And John, true to form of being a prophet, had something to demonstrate. He had something to illustrate. God gave him something to do, and that was this message of repentance, but of baptism. There was a very physical thing that he was doing to describe to the people what needed to take place in the heart. And that's how, what's what we believe of baptism. He proclaimed, he preached this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And this was essentially his life purpose, and he was fulfilling the role that God had set out for him to do. The baptism that he's preached was not just a physical act of immersing oneself in water. It was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The baptism was not something that caused the repentance, as if he was dipping in some magical water and somehow they were brought up and uh, suddenly that meant that they had repented. But it was a symbolic marker. Remember, prophets are given something to do to show something that relates to the spiritual I see it as a symbolic marker that was administered to those who were repentant, who knew that they needed forgiveness of sins, and who not only were forgiven or acknowledged forgiveness of sins, but that they would repent of those sins. John did not call on Israel just to be sorry for what they've done. You know, all these years of rejection, just tell them you're sorry. But no, this is a change of their mental attitude and their conduct. That's what repentance shows. The word that is used here, metanoia, means a change of mind and thus of action consequent upon realization that one has sinned and that sin is wrong. Now there's a related word, which is metamelamai, metamelamai, and that is the sorrow for sin because of its consequences. And that is the remorse, that is the sorry part of it. But the, metam, the, the word used here is metanoia, which means that it is an inward change. It is an action that must take place at the realization that, that I have sin. I am sorry for my sin, and I'm going to take action for it. I know you've forgiven me. Vincent commenting on this phrase says, A baptism, the characteristic of which was repentance, which involved an obligation to repent. Metanoia means much more than merely a change of mind, but also includes a complete change of heart attitude and a result of a full about face change in direction of one's life. This is Mark's only use of metanoia, but he also has two uses of the verb, um, that we'll see later on in, in the scriptures. So repentance. Um, you know, we are to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, that this is a continual thing. It's not a one-time repent, but we live in a life of repentance. I believe it's the consecrating work of the Holy Spirit to cause us to grieve our sin, to be sorrowful, but then to turn from that sin in faith 
to the one who has saved us, the one who enables us by his Holy Spirit within us to overcome that sin so that we're not living in a pattern of sinful behavior, that sin is not what marks our life and our character, but rather righteousness and seeking and striving to be righteous. That is the life of repentance that we live. And so as John baptized the Jews, he was also continually telling them that they must believe in Jesus. And by implication, it's not in the physical act of baptism only. They were not to put their faith in the fact that they were physically or literally baptized, but they were to put their faith in the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, the Anointed One, who alone could save them from their sins. And that is for us too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you as we enter this uh, book. There's a lot of richness in there for us to understand and to take in. We might miss some of it. There's a lot of things that I may have put in my notes that weren't covered, but God, you've given us the portion that we've needed for today. We trust in you to have provided the thing that will encourage us, will lift us up, um, but will also convict us, show us where we need to be uh, sorry for our sins, but also to not just be sorry, but to repent of it. God, that you would grant us repentance and that you would work in us to keep us in you, Lord, to just show us the way. You have led us into the way, which is your Son, but you would continue to help us to walk on a path that is upright before you. Thank you that we no longer have to walk in our own deeds of righteousness, that those are before you like filthy rags, but rather you have given us and put upon us the righteousness of your one and only Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for just the gospel saturating the words of Scripture, that we can look anywhere and we can see it either pointing ahead to the covenant that would come and be fulfilled and those of us now on this side of the cross looking at the covenant fulfilled and all that it means to us, Lord, that we never stop sharing the gospel with one another, in particular that you help us in sharing the gospel with those who are lost, those in our family, those in our workplaces, in our community, wherever you would put us, Lord, that we would be heralds of the way and that we would point people uh, to the light, that we'd speak into the wilderness, into the darkness of the human condition of souls and where we were once lost, but you pulled us out of that darkness, Lord. You have saved us, and it is only because of your grace. Thank you for that amazing grace that was extended to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we love you, Lord. And we thank you for this beginning of a new year, the beginning of a new book, and maybe for some, it's the start of a new life in you. We pray these things and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.